0: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz in the house here. Not Michael Horowitz, the FBI Inspector General. But this is Daniel Horowitz, your National Inspector General of our entire constitutional system of governance. Or I would say the collapse of our constitutional system of governance. Hope you guys all had a great weekend. Um, I know I did. And I'm having a case of the Monday blues, just hard getting going this week. You know, really, really had a lot of fun with the kids on Sunday. Um, Taught my kids how to play baseball and, you know, started to realize that at their age, we're already outgrowing our backyard where they could hit the ball outside the the fence. And, you know, I just got thinking, man, I don't want to go to work the next day. I don't want to... Spend the next 30 years of my life failing at something. Just constantly witnessing the decline of this country, maybe even being the Jeremiah about it, and having the ability to chronicle the decline. But I want to do something about it. As, as you guys well know, I'm all about solutions. Now, obviously, the first part of a solution is identifying and recognizing and acknowledging the severity of the problem. Don't deny it. Don't get drunk on the political morphine, the political opioids of what's going on within the 24 hours, 48 hours in front of you. Look broadly at what is happening to our culture, our economy, the growth of government, the bastardization of state and federal powers, of unalienable rights versus positive privileges of federal versus state powers of legislative versus judicial powers observe all of that and you'll understand that what we're doing is not working what we're doing in the Republican Party is not working what we're doing to so-called fix the courts by merely appointing better judges is not working I don't say that to dispirit you I say that To motivate us all, including myself, to act. So I called – of all people last night, I was really in a bad mood, and I called Tom Coburn. He's a former senator of Oklahoma, as many of you well know. And he actually quit the Senate. I originally thought because he had life-threatening cancer, and boy, was he a fighter. Wow. Um, But in the end, it seems that that wasn't the case. He he quit because he just had enough of it. And he realized what I realized. He realized it on the inside that it's just irremediably broken under the current trajectory. If we don't look outside for solutions, if we don't think outside of the box. So I figured I'd just call him up and you know bounce back some ideas of mine. He obviously likes my grassroots policymaking, citizens' committees, task forces idea. We, we talked a little bit about the convention of the state's grassroots and a bunch of other things as well as some of his endorsements. And I also talked to him about another idea. And and, you know what, maybe I'll even get him on the show one day. And by the way, I'm just thinking, I remember back when he gave his farewell address and he literally had no larynx to speak um, because of the cancer. And he kind of whispered his speech. It was just so heartfelt. Um, We talked a lot about healthcare solutions. You know, he's a he's a physician, obviously. And uh man. It was just it was just a real powerful conversation. So it kind of motivated me to jumpstart this week is as, as much as I was just really having the case of the Monday blues. But anyway, something we discussed is something that happened over the weekend I wanted to share with you. If you haven't heard by now, you're not gonna hear most other people talk about this, but I think this is the single biggest Really, really a single biggest force multiplier. As you well know, I'm not into just one-off solutions, meaning it's either my latest great idea or nothing. I try to offer multiple parallel solutions that are not mutually exclusive. You know, some are short-term, mid-term, long-term. Obviously, as you well know by now, if you've listened to me for more than two weeks, the Republican Party is irremediably broken. We need, we need a new party. But as well as acknowledging that problem, I believe there – and I've always believed there is a solid middle ground within the Republican Party if we wanted to put all of our activism into this goal. And that is changing from direct primaries – To representative conventions, kind of like the Utah convention used to be, and maybe even strengthen it, not like the way they weakened the Utah convention. Something interesting happened at the Utah convention over the weekend that proves my point. I know I put this out a couple years ago. I did a podcast at at the time, and I think it's worth revisiting it. Both why primaries are are irremediably broken. We're never going to elect more than one conservative per every six to 10 years in the Senate, one conservative in the House per cycle. We're not getting anywhere. We're not even adding to our numbers in the Freedom Caucus. We're actually losing members. Retirements, people moving on to run for other offices, and we're not replenishing those seats, even in open seats, much less knocking off any of these incumbents. And that is, by the way, at the same time, they're betraying us, and you would think everyone realizes that. They're not repealing Obamacare. They're growing the debt more than the Democrats did when they were in power. And yet, there, there's nothing going on. And that is because the entire system is broken. And it has its roots in our founding. So anyway, Utah has been the one state. You know, A couple other states have it. On some level, Colorado has it, a couple of Western states. Um, but Utah is the only state that's consistently had a convention for its um, Senate and House candidates. Where basically, this is not a bunch of oligarchs, you know, the party leadership getting together and choosing um, their leadership or their candidates, their nominees for Senate, for House, and smoke filled rooms. What it is, is a bunch of people getting together, divided by 4,000 precincts, I believe, in the state. And you get together in your neighborhood and you hold a neighborhood precinct meeting. And you're like, gee, I don't know who these guys are. I don't have time. I have a normal job for a living. But I want the best conservative that's going to get what we want done, that's not going to waver, that's not going to be duplicitous, that doesn't get special interest money to say what a conservative he is in the primary, but then stab us in the back. So, hey, you, John Doe, you go to the convention and pick that guy for us. And these are very much party activists. Some of them will be establishment people, but by and large, they're, they're conservative activists that understand the who's who and what's what of politics. They understand the chicanery. The millions of dollars of ads are largely meaningless when you're dealing with a smaller population of highly motivated, highly educated voters. When I say educated, I don't mean academically. I mean educated on politics. And they choose the nominee. This, folks, is how we got Mike Lee. Let me give you an interesting statistic. Do you know the last time a Republican conservative Senate candidate successfully defeated an incumbent senator in a primary running to the right of that individual – that's a critical point – running to the right and then wasn't damaged enough or sabotaged enough that they were able to go on and win the general election – Now, notice I have a lot of qualifiers in there. The last time that happened was in 1996. Sam Brownback beat uh, an appointed incumbent (laughs) senator. Now, if you make one more more qualification and say, when was the last time someone ran to the right of an incumbent Republican who had been elected previously – I believe the last time is 1980 when Al D'Amato ran to the right of Jacob Javits for the GOP Senate nomination in New York, and he won. That's 38 years ago. It's very rare to knock off an incumbent from the right in the House. It's almost never done in the Senate. It's impossible statewide just for our guys to to raise the money – to have the name ID, to cut through the lying where the incumbent runs on our views and then says our guy's the liberal. It never, it, it, it essentially never happens. Now you might say, well, Daniel, Daniel, what about Mike Lee? Didn't Mike Lee do that in 2010? Bada bing. That is the Utah convention for you. He didn't knock him off in a primary. He knocked him off in a convention. And in fact, Bennett, the incumbent, came in third. There were two challengers, and then they duked it out in an ensuing primary. But Bennett, the incumbent, long time incumbent, been there for decades, he would not have gone down in a primary. Mike Lee would not be a senator today. And at the time, I said, imagine if in every state we had a Utah model convention instead of a primary. Now, before we zoom out and discuss this solution, this imperative, why we need this, how it could be done, let's just see what happened over the weekend with Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney rides into Utah. It's like, hey, I screwed up every other election enough. Let me go move halfway around the country and use my Mormon you know, status to run as senator in Utah and get in there to do who knows what while I'm in my 70s. But get elected to Senate. I don't know if he's grooming himself for another presidential run when he's 100 years old, or whether he just wants to cause trouble and be, you know, with McCain, you know, kind of on his way out. If Romney wants to be the new McCain. But either way, Romney comes in there with all the money, name, ID, prestige, party connections, endorsements. Heck, he has Trump's endorsement. Yet, ironically, Romney won't commit to endorsing Trump, which is funny. Um, you know, Trump kind of looks humiliated with that thing, but anyway, Romney comes in there and this is like, he's got it sewed up. There's an individual named Mike Kennedy. He's a state rep in the state legislature there, and he challenged him among other people who are even less known. Now, this is nothing personal to Mike Kennedy, and look, I'd love for him to come on the show and he's welcome to come and discuss his candidacy. But, you know, he's kind of like an ant in front of an elephant politically compared to someone of the stature of Mitt Romney. How in the, I mean, you cannot, you cannot get more of an uphill battle than challenging Mitt Romney in a primary at this stage, especially when you're kind of unknown like this guy, Mike Kennedy. Well, guess what? Mike Kennedy didn't just get 5 percent, didn't just get 10 percent. Didn't just have a strong showing of 25%, 30 35%. He actually edged out Mitt Romney for the convention endorsement of the nomination for Senate by about two points, something like 51-49. And again, this is the, – the playing field is tilted so much here. You could imagine when the establishment candidate is not quite as well-known as Romney and maybe the challenger is a little bit more well-known, you could imagine how much better he would have done. This is pretty big news. Now, practically, sadly, unfortunately, in this case, it's not going to matter much, but I want to talk about the lesson we're going to learn. It doesn't matter much because basically you have to get 60% to avoid a primary, and anyway, they gutted the Utah convention. So rather than strengthening the convention and then replicating it in every other state, the establishment said, wait a minute, we don't want another Mike Lee and they actually weaken the convention. So now even if you get 90% of the activist support at the convention, it doesn't matter. Basically, you could bypass the convention if you get a certain number of signatures, which they usually do if you're an establishment candidate. You're always going to have enough resources to gather the requisite signatures. You could bypass the convention or just null, you know, make, make it null and void and just opt for a primary, and then they have to hold a primary. So in this case, even though Romney narrowly lost the convention, he easily got the um the signatures and he's going to run in the primary. And it's gonna be very, very difficult for for him to to knock him off in a primary. And look, this is what they did already, you know, and, and, and another example of how we're going backwards. Last year we had the special election of of Jason Chaffetz. You know, he had enough of Congress, he he left. Even even though he was chairman of the Oversight Government Reform Committee, he had enough, and uh, it triggered a special election. There was a solid Club for Dor- Growth-endorsed candidate, state rep, um, Chris Herrod, who is a solid conservative, would have been with the Freedom Caucus, and he was up against literally a Republican in name only, literally a Democrat, um, just ran as a Republican because he needed to in the state of Utah, this guy, um, Curtis. And basically what happened was Herod, of course, won the convention, and then Herod got crushed in the primary because they gutted the convention as the final arbiter. But here's my point. What if the convention in Utah would be the final say? Whoever wins the convention wins absolutely, and there's no primary. And what if we replicated that in the 15 most conservative states in the primaries? I want to posit to you that look, we're not going to have a hundred percent success rate. Don't give me this strawman. Well, Daniel, our establishment will gain that. You're not going to win every time. Well, gee, I take not losing every time over not you know over the status quo. We have a zero percent success rate in the Senate and maybe a five percent success rate in the House. We never beat incumbents in the Senate. We almost never win open House seats in the Senate. We barely ever win against incumbents in the House and we lose more open seats than we win in the house we're going backwards. We'll win maybe 3 good open house seats per cycle. We'll be dead by the time we could get um you know enough people in there. It's like drinking coffee with a fork. You can't get enough of a critical mass in at once to force change. But what if we suddenly made 15 states competitive? where you could put 50 House seats and six, seven Senate seats in play in one cycle. Imagine the benefits of that. Our founders wanted Republicanism, not direct democracy. They understood that when you so-called let the people decide, really what you're doing is letting the elites decide. See, The founders were the ultimate moderates. They were the ultimate centrists. Constitutional republicanism is centrism at its heart. On the one end, you have oligarchy, where a couple people just wield all the power. On the other hand, you open it up to the people and say just vote on everything. Well, you land in the same place. That's what Jefferson in the notes of the state of Virginia and Madison, the Federalist Papers, called elective despotism. We'll just buy the rope to hang ourselves with. And you see it every day in the elections. The people don't want the agenda, but the people keep voting for the agenda because they just don't get it. I'm saying even the people that agree with us make wrong decisions. What do you do when, I mean, you have this now with Ron DeSantis running first for governor in Florida the establishment guy is running ads against him saying he's for illegal immigrants when he voted against the farm bill that funded food stamps for illegals and that's what they do to confuse voters you try running that in state conventions and it's meaningless you don't need to raise the money it's the great equalizer I'm not saying we're going to win everyone. I'm saying it's a level playing field. It's a level playing field. You know, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, the founders wanted a filtered representation. Now, they had a very intelligent design. It was to have the house closest to people, but again, the house is a smaller unit. The districts are smaller. So they felt direct democracy could work better. But for the Senate, they wanted the state legislatures to pick. Once we repealed the 17th Amendment during the Progressive Era – I'm sorry. Once we enacted the 17th Amendment repealing the original design of state legislatures picking the senators. So states became worthless. States didn't have representation. And guess what? The Senate became a cesspool. As bad as the House is, the Senate is 10 times worse. There's literally, what, three conservatives in the Senate? 10 if you measure liberally on some issues. Not every issue, but if you, you know, Cotton's good a little bit here, Purdue's good good there. Handful of others will do good for us on a given day. You're not going to get more than 10. That's a far cry from 51 seats, much less 60. And even at the height of the success of the contract with America with Newt Gingrich when the House was somewhat doing good things. The Senate was always bad, and now it's even worse. We've never elected good senators. Because when you have direct popular elections on a much larger scale statewide, it's even worse. Now, there's, there's, there's an effort, obviously, Convention of the States to Repeal the 17th Amendment. Now, that's going to take 38 states agreeing that that is a very tough road, tough hill to climb, right? But here's the deal. What if I gave you a backdoor repeal of the 17th Amendment? Meaning, what if I took the states where more or less – 15 or 20 or so states where more or less whoever wins the nomination of the Republican Party – wins the general election, and I attacked it at a primary party level. Now, to be clear, parties are private organizations that now created a monopoly through the Buddha government and statute and election law, but officially private organizations, so there's no constitutional mandate on how they have to operate. They can do whatever they want. But what if, what if I told you that there's a way to repeal the 17th Amendment De facto, I mean, not for real, without going through the process, simply by fixing party rules in in various states or at least having a vote on election law in state legislatures. It's tough because obviously, you know, they're comprised of elected Republicans and Democrats and they're going to want to protect the process. But, you know, what if we put all of our resources rather than focusing on nonsense into this? And he started in Texas and Oklahoma and states like that. You go throughout the South and the Great Plains and the West, Rocky Mountains, Idaho, states like that, and we elected and we changed the laws to call for state conventions, abolish the primaries. I am telling you, you can't get worse than we have now. You can't get worse. But to me, this is a solution because you're seeing, even in a case where you have a no-name guy going up against Mitt Romney, you cannot get a wider gulf in stature than than what you had in Utah. And still, the challenger, Mike Kennedy, he won the convention. How much more so— If you had a scenario like this, you know, I've spoken, I've spoken, I'm losing my mind here. I've spoken to various Freedom Caucus members, and they've told me straight up that they would be more inclined to run against their incumbent rhino senators and, you know, try to move from the House to the Senate if they had state conventions and he had a level playing field. See, there's another problem right now. A lot of people come up to me and say, well, Daniel, stop recruiting sucky candidates. I'm all for going after these guys, but you have to have better candidates. Well, I got news for you. They don't exist. Because here's the problem. Because it is so hard, almost impossible to challenge your party in a primary. It's rigged. It's like a haunted house. They control every, every lever. You're not going to be able to do it. What happens is it's a brain drain, and it, it's a self-fulfilling death spiral of candidate recruitment. You're not going to get anyone who's, let's say, a respected House member to go for Senate against an incumbent Republican senator in a primary because they're, if they have a promising career, they're not going to risk it. I wish they would, but they're not because it's still – even though they're better than some of the candidates we wind up getting, it's still at best a 40 percent chance that they'll win and, and most likely a lot less but if you had state conventions imagine if you had a state convention in north carolina i can guarantee you mark meadows would run and he'd crush tillis or burr in a primary 80 to 20 ditto for ohio if jim jordan if you had a state convention if jim jordan were to challenge rob portman or let's say a guy like jeff duncan in south carolina would challenge lindsey graham Or if a guy like Andy Biggs would challenge Jeff Flake or your John McCain's of the world in Arizona. They'd go down in a convention in two seconds. You know, look no further. Look no further than the presidential election, from my point. Donald Trump won pretty much every primary. Ted Cruz won most of the caucuses and conventions. Now, if you're someone who supported Cruz over Trump in the primary, so you certainly get what I'm talking about. But even if you supported Trump over Cruz, you have to admit that that was an anomaly that worked out for you in that one instance. But if you supported Trump, but you generally want to fight the establishment, it's going to work against you every other time. It's because Trump – I understand he didn't. Really have a traditional campaign with raising all the money, but his name ID and media focus was worth trillions of dollars. It was all about that. So he won all the primaries. But when you went to the conventions and caucuses, they weren't party establishment folks because they would have chosen Marco Rubio or whoever else, Jeb Bush, maybe Scott Walker, any of the other you know 15 candidates. They voted for Ted Cruz because these were party these weren't party hacks. They were grassroots activists. And there's a lot to be said for that. People don't realize the direct primary was one of the progressive changes that came along with Teddy Roosevelt and the Republican Party in 1912. It started, you know, it gradually started maybe 15 years before that. But the progressive era was there in earnest in the 1890s. But around the same time, they got the Federal Reserve, the 16th Amendment, 17th Amendment. All the progressive changes is when they changed the primaries too. Now look, granted, granted that prior to that, it was probably a little bit too much the other way where you had the smoke-filled room conventions where it was just the party poo-bahs. And the people had no say, so it was too much the other way. But the Utah model convention, if we actually strengthen it, is the perfect middle ground of of Republican representation. Informed patriotism. Where anyone who wants could participate. You could come to your precinct meetings. You could run for a precinct delegate to go to the convention. But naturally, it fosters more of a debate. Where you get in each other's face, you're like, look, we all want to change things, but you understand candidate A is a status quo hack, and here's why. Don't be fooled by the millions of dollars of ads. I'm telling you, nothing is going to come easy, but if you want one change that will force multiply the primaries and by extension change our government without directly starting a new party – this is how you do it. Now, this would this would happen in one of two ways: either you would change party rules in a given state, so you fight within the Texas GOP to change it. Now, I understand it's very hard. Or you do it at the legislative level. You just abolish primaries, so a party could stamp their feet and say, "We want," you know we want uh primaries but if the state doesn't offer it then they don't offer it nothing they can do about it look maybe this is something where we could join with left wing grassroots activists and apply it equally to their primaries you know now i don't know how many are fed up with their primaries cuz the reality is the candidates they they choose are reflective of their values you know the Democrats are doing good to promote left-wing values, unlike the Republican Party, which doesn't represent conservatives. So maybe there's not enough disquiet on the left, but you know maybe we could work with them. And you work Democrats and Republicans, and you pressure them in the legislature to change it. I know, I know, it's it's you know the incumbent powers, and they're you know not going to want conventions. But you got to start somewhere. I wish I could start a movement to focus on this. You know, I've been yelping about this for three years, but when I saw this result, that even against someone as strong as Mitt Romney, this no name guy, and again, I don't say no name to put him down. I mean, no name in terms of public persona. um, You know, I'm sure his ideas are not no name. They're a lot better than Mitt Romney's. He was able to pull out a victory at the convention, but sadly, it's a hollow victory the way they do the, the convention now, and they have a primary anyway. I mean, what we're doing now is not working. The reality is that it's even harder for conservatives to win primaries nowadays than ever before, and which is why we're going backwards. Despite all these grassroots organizations, these Tea Party type of organizations, you know, an increased focus on primaries that we didn't really have until this past decade, we're going backwards. We're not even maintaining our numbers, much less increasing them, much less getting promoting House conservatives to the Senate. See, while in the old days a lot of people were uninformed, now millions of people are, are misinformed by ma- the mass weapon of disinformation that has become ubiquitous in mass media. So they're, they're not just uninformed, yeah, I don't know politics. They're misinformed because, as Reagan would say, they know so much that isn't so. You know, election results in presidential and Senate primaries are directly related to media coverage and name ID. It's not the guy with the best ideas. There's simply no way a a constitutional conservative can talk over the soap opera narrative with serious issues. I mean that's the reality. Everyone wants to know why your ordinary Joe six-pack can't win an election, or it's very rare. Oh, there's too much money in politics. The answer is simple. With the growth of the country, even a single house district is what, seven hundred fifty thousand people. A Senate seat, obviously, you know, except for you know the smallest states, is millions of people. And elections aren't about ideas; they're about money and name ID. It's all about media coverage. House races don't get that much media coverage, but it's all about paid media. Ordinary conservatives seeking to challenge the status quo cannot get their message out. You can't reach the masses. It's inaccessible. This is why they didn't want direct democracy. It's going to be the 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 worst elements that manipulate the system. Letting the people decide party nominees has resulted in has resulted in letting the media and money decide. Think about it. If someone comes along and runs on one of our sacred issues, judicial reform, let's pick another one, healthcare reform, getting the middleman, the third-party payer out of our system. Well, gee, you're not going to get a single check from the healthcare industry, the most prolific donors. So forget about an incumbent. That's obvious. You can't raise a penny in your district, in your estate. Even the people that sympathize with your message broadly are too scared to be caught dead. You know, especially if you're a business owner. By definition, if you're donating money, you're usually, you know, well to do, successful. You're out there in the public. You have some sort of business. You're not going to want to upset the incumbent powers. That's the problem. I mean, this is the monopoly that they've grown for themselves. But even in an open seat, we see this all the time. You know, let's pick a Texas, Oklahoma, or rural district anywhere. That's an R plus 20 seat. Whoever wins the primary will win the general election. So let's say you have a Republican who's been there for 20 years, he decides to retire. Okay, finally. All right, phew. okay, so we couldn't beat him as an incumbent, but now at least as an open seat, should you know now with you know, you look at the GOP base, what they want, isn't it certain that the most conservative guy is going to win? No, not at all. Not at all. Because guess what? Now you have 15 people. Everyone wants a safe Republican seat if you're a Republican. 15 people are going to run for that primary. Everyone's going to run as more conservative than the next. But who ultimately wins? Nine out of 10 times, it's the guy with the most money to say what a great conservative he is. Now, I've got news for you. 99 out of 100 times, the guy with the most money to say what a conservative he is is the worst element you could ever have. He uses the special interest money to run on our views, but then we'll do the exact opposite. Now, the activists know that, but the masses, you know, he puts out these really clever ads, you know, Joni Ernst, castrate the hogs, remember that. And now the only thing she supports castrating are our soldiers in the military, literally, with castration operations paid for in the military. I'd love to see her running in on that. No, she won't. But that—that's that, the deal here. See, incumbent rhinos or in open seats, they no longer—they—they they don't run anymore as Rockefeller Republicans. You know, remember I told you the last time we succeeded in knocking off a Republican from the right in the Senate primary was Jacob Javits, but Javits was known—I mean, he was literally a Democrat. He was a quintessential Rockefeller Republican. Everyone knew where he stood. He also had poor health, too, at that point, which played a role in it. It's almost impossible to win. But now they don't run as that. I mean, Mitt Romney himself got up there at the convention. Could you believe this? The godfather of Obamacare saying, We're not just going to amend it, we're going to repeal Obamacare. They lie. And then, as always, they paint their challengers as something less than conservative, which is just devastating. You know, I want to talk to you a little bit about Chip Roy. I, I, I rarely do this, but as you all well know, I endorsed him. You know, running in the San Antonio, Austin based district, you know, between San Antonio and Austin, I believe it's District 21, or I hope I'm not forgetting. Um anyway, Chip is a, is a friend of mine, a friend of you know the few patriots that really aren't just in the conservative selfie movement, but actually really trying to make a difference. This is a man who sacrificed everything. Um as you can imagine, Chief of Staff to Ted Cruz and Texas Attorney General, he could have easily gotten a pretty lucrative job in private law practice. But instead, he's running and, and and his biggest issues are judicial reform getting the healthcare cartel out of healthcare and focusing on the debt and limiting government and he you know he has given up his entire career even when he had stage 4 cancer to do this he literally doesn't want this But, you know, he turned to me and Steve Dace and some of us said, look, you know, we all complain and none of us ever run and we always rely on everyone else and yelp at them from the outside to do what we want on the inside. Don't we need a man on the field? And I I really don't want to do this. I know it's kind of crazy, but heck, I, I can't live with myself if I don't expend every last chance we have, every last opportunity to maybe make a difference. Guess what's happening now? This guy running in the runoff, this other guy is saying he's a career politician, he's a Washington insider, using this superficial. I mean, it's like you could call me an insider. You could call me a a swamp guy, I guess, you know. And it, it just it rips my heart apart knowing Chip. Oh, and by the way, he he's a carpet bagger. Because he doesn't live in the district. Now, Look, there's one thing if a guy moves from out of state. There's one thing if maybe, let's say, in a state the size of Texas, you're from Amarillo and you run in a San Antonio based district. The guy's a few freaking miles outside the district and the district's drawn weirdly. The districts are arbitrary, it's not sacred ground. He roughly represents the same area. You know, he saw this as his way to serve. But, you know, again, with these lying ads. Very deceptive. You could build a whole narrative out of that. This is what you get. When you have direct primaries to the masses, you get the elites winning. Every time. You know, this is how Tim Huell's camp lost. Not only did we fail to win a Senate seat last cycle, Not only did we fail to knock off a single House incumbent, you know, the previous cycle we knocked off Eric Cantor, and even if you do, you know, whoop de doo one seat out of 435, what's that going to do for us? But actually, we lost one of our own, Tim Hulskamp, one of the best members of Congress, because the whores for for big ag and big amnesty put up this guy— who ran saying Tim Ewell's camp's a career politician and I'm this great conservative. And now this guy's out there promoting amnesty, saying how uh, amnesty is great because these guys are natural conservative voters. Never would have put out ads saying that. Never would have won in a convention. But that's what you get when you have primaries. You know, the founders understood this. They understood this. Okay, so we defeated King George. What comes next? How do you get the optimal liberty? How does self-governance work? And it was a while. There were a lot of different ideas to try to achieve a shared goal. You know, ultimately they put out the New Jersey plan and the Virginia plan. They had a compromise, and this is what they came out with with the bicameral legislature. One represents directly the people, one's the states. All comprising the federal government. And then the president chosen by electors. And by the way, that was meant to be more filtered than it is today. Electoral college is now, it's become a joke. I mean, at least it's a state-by-state state election, not national popular vote, which would be an utter disaster. But um, as far as the state elections, it's still, it's it's a direct vote. At least Statewide. But what I'm telling you is that if we ran our presidential campaigns and Senate and House, don't think of Trump. If you're a Trump supporter and it happened to work good for him, I am telling you this will never happen again where you're going to have the guy who is challenging the system outside as the most name ID. It's always going to be the opposite. So anyway, I mean, that is the way we go. That is why I'm so confident in the case for reforming primaries for you know in favor of state conventions. And you know, there, there would be a lot of advantages to this. You know, a lot of people complain about the role of money and media. It would play an awfully minimal role. You know, imagine if each one of you who listen in this audience, you became one of those precinct delegates you know i have that in my neighborhood i live in a i live in a neighborhood obviously the broader county where i'm from and the state there's no way we could ever elect any republican much less a good one but you know a lot of people ask me in primaries well daniel who who do i vote for it's not that i have different values than them we have the same values it's just that i do this for a living i pay attention to it even even when i do it's often hard even someone like me, I don't have the answer for all 435 districts. It's tough. It, it's really tough if you have a solid house seat that's now open and you have 15 guys vying for it and none of them really have a paper trail, it's very difficult. But politics is an art, it's not a science and you, you get a sense of their language, their associations. what's what's motivating them? The media. And the campaign ads would, ha- would play a minimal role in determining that because you would nominate a guy or choose a guy that understands this. And maybe people in your areas that don't really listen to Mark Levin, don't listen to me, don't read conservative reviews, subscribe to CRTV, but they want to change the country for the better, they'd say, hey, you guys seem to know what you're talking about. You get good information. You go to a convention for me. That's how it would work. You know, the prospect of winning with a grassroots ground game without the need for a massive money money and media campaign would attract better conservative talent to run for office. You know, the bottom line is it's, it's a suicide mission, so you often don't get good candidates because who would want to commit political suicide? By the way, one other great um, advantage to this is that the requirement to actually show up at a precinct caucus – would automatically get rid of the problem with this stupid early voting in primaries. Now, early voting is is uh, I believe unconstitutional, certainly against the spirit of the Constitution, and it's a dumb idea even in the general election. But it's even worse in the primaries because think about it. Primary, see, general election, you could say it's R versus D. It's polarized country. It's more or less you know everyone's kind of knows where they are. It's just a matter of when you're going to vote. So you choose to vote early. Um, but in a primary, it's really bad. Forget about ideology. Let's talk about within a Republican par- primary, within a Democrat primary, not R versus D. So let's say, let's talk from a conservative vantage point, a Republican primary. Everyone wants more or less the best conservative to win. Okay. Who is the best conservative? Well, it's just going to be the guy with the most name ID. What often happens is, to the extent that out outside the box, outside the system, grassroots challengers gain traction. It's in the final two weeks. I could tell you that. You could take that to the bank. It's in the final two weeks. Well, guess what? When you have early voting, that's baked already. And it's insurmountable. It's not that people, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't know he was viable. Oh, you know, it's not that I wanted the other guy. I didn't know another viable candidate existed. It's not like, oh, you know, I would have changed my mind. Things could happen. That that that's a problem in the general election, but it's even worse. I'm not even making a partisan point. Just logically, it makes no sense to have early voting in a primary. And then think about the presidential election where you have 15 candidates running throughout a and it's not a national primary day. It's a staggered process. So it builds on itself, it builds momentum. So often a candidate will have a surprise showing and gain momentum for the next state. But whoops, the next state is not really next because half the people already voted before the results of the previous state. That happened a lot in the last primary. And also what's even worse is a lot of candidates drop out. Oh, whoops, but 40% of the ballots were cast already. This was the big problem that Cruz um, faced when he was trying to challenge um, Trump and consolidate the anti-Trump vote. It was The fact was that people voted for Rubio. It was already baked even after he um, dropped out. It's just so dumb. So if you abolish direct primaries, you don't have this problem. You have one designated day where you kind of show up and you vote for your precinct uh, delegate, and then the delegates go at a specified date to a convention, and they vote on that one day for the nominee. Also, another interesting thing is this is also a mean the means are the ends too selecting state government officials through conventions would help build up a cadre of state governments that push back against federal tyranny you know you're you're building a whole grassroots network around these conventions and you could do a lot of things partly these citizens task forces heck you know imagine if um you know you got together at these precinct meetings and said hey after we choose our delegates let's meet again in a week Unofficially, this is not you know legally binding in the, in, in the party rules, but to discuss these issues and put out recommendations and reports and offer to testify at hearings and contact our conservative members that we now elected because we have conventions and have a shadow government like we spoke about a couple weeks ago. This, to me, is constitutional governance, but at least let's fix it within the primaries first. Anyway, we went long here. I wanted to get to other things, but we don't have much time. But we're going to have a lot more on the courts. The courts have accomplished more for the left in the last four days than what the GOP Congress has accomplished for the right since taking over in 1995. And only being out of power for four of those uh, you know, 23 or so years. I mean, the stuff they've done, sanctuary cities on abortion, on due process rights for illegals, on mandating funding for teen pregnancies, a program that Obama created and Trump tried to end, and they, you know, many of his regulations. Oh, cafe standards. Now, the fines against companies who don't comply, not with the baseline statute, but Obama's added cafe standards. Uh oh, the courts put an injunction on that. And there's no pushback in Congress. We have a border surge, a drug surge, an MS-13 gang surge. Nothing from Congress. And again, because the people we send don't represent the people because the people directly vote. And I know that sounds like a paradox, but that's what our founders didn't want. So we'll have a lot more on this. We'll have a lot more on healthcare I want to get to as well this week. Send me your thoughts, Harwitz at crtv.com, at Conservative on Twitter. Let me know how we organize this and which states to start from. I challenge anyone to show me a better idea that's more achievable. When I say more achievable, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it doesn't require super majorities or constitutional amendments. Something with simple change of party rules or change of state statute, you could do this. Challenge you to find me a better force multiplying idea. Because that way it builds on itself. Imagine if every cycle, you know, part of the problem is even the good people we elect, they just get worn out and they just kind of go with the swamp. They just get tired of it. They want to so called get things done, which means not to get things done, but, you know, they get worn down because they're so alone and they don't want to be reviewed as a crazy. But imagine if you have more people coming in and colleagues at the same time. Because I'll tell you this much, it's not ha- happening this election cycle. I mean, you would think, wow, after, after the betrayal, okay, well, we were focused more on the Democrats before because it was Obama, so we weren't so focused on the primaries. But now you got it all. You got the House, you got the Senate, you got the White House, and we see the results. Particularly on issues like healthcare and immigration and the courts. And the debt. And Nothing. There's no evidence that we're changing the game in the primaries, and in fact, we're going backwards. I didn't mean this show to be less upbeat than I wanted it it to be, because I actually am upbeat. I think we could do this, and I think if we were to do this, we would completely upend the Republican Party and, by extension, the political system. But we got to be focused, not on, on on the most sensational news story that the media decides to promote within 24 hours. We got to look long term and harness some of what happens in the short term to make these long term decisions. That's it. The only reason why this can't be done is because we don't have more of my colleagues doing this. If you got 10 more people focused on this like I am with a national platform, I think we could start a movement. So let me know your ideas how I could work with people and I will. You know I'm going to start to work with people, people like Tom Coburn, retired conservatives that are still trying to make a difference. Maybe we'll have him on the show and you know get get his ideas. And then as always if you are a candidate um you know, come on the show, but, but but again, I mean, don't waste my time if you raise three cents. And I don't blame you. It's tough to raise money, but I'm just saying, if you if you haven't raised at least a hundred thousand dollars, and that's a that's very little, but at least a hundred thousand for a house race, it's not happening. Even Dave Brat, which was the biggest upset ever, he he spent about hundred thirty thousand. But that's the thing. Were we to go to conventions, that would largely be moot. But anyway. Until this week takes off, you know, we start to see how this week shapes itself. To me, this was the most important story over the weekend that I took away from here. That if even a guy like Mitt Romney could be defeated by a no-name guy in a convention, imagine if we had conventions in 20 other states with the actual legal authority to pick the nominee, not just suggest the nominee. Because you do have that in some states. Virginia, I know, has that. You do have conventions, but they don't actually determine instead of the primary. Look, I'm always going to think of ideas. Maybe not all my ideas are good ideas, but by golly, we're going to think of ideas here at the Conservative Conscience because it's not about me. It's not about a personality. I don't want to be doing this for another 30 years. and that, that, That's the reality. I have no interest in just promoting my name and promoting my brand and promoting myself. I want to promote policy solutions, strategic solutions, systemic government reform solutions, political solutions to actually not just work for even conservatives but for all of us and finally restore our constitutional republic. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.